Hello, and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko, and today we have Dave Bricker. The title of this episode is The Power of Stories with Dave Bricker. Dave Bricker is a speaker, presentation coach, and storytelling expert. If you want to say it, share it, or sell it, bring him your story, and he will help you tell it. Dave, welcome to the show. Hector, thanks for having me. Great to be here today. The first question I always ask my guest is, who is? So who is Dave Bricker? Well, I don't think we've got time for that, but I'll give you the, the short version. When I was a private prep school kid, interested in lots of different things, kind of on the straight and narrow path, probably would have become a doctor or an attorney. And I met these people after my first year of college who lived on sailboats and they they didn't have any money, but they traveled all over the world, had wonderful stories about storms and reefs and beautiful islands. And when I realized that you could have adventures without diving into a book or going to a movie theater, I thought, I want me some of that. And by the time I graduated college, I was living aboard a small sailboat that I bought my part-time job and been fixing it up. And about six months after graduating, I took off for the Bahamas with $30 in my pocket and a locker full of food and dreams and ended up spending a total of about 15 years living on board. And let's go right into what you are an expert at, which is storytelling. And in order to get storytelling down packed, we need to understand the story. Dave, what is a story? A story is a journey from conflict to transformation. Think of a story as, well, first of all, the golden rule of storytelling is that stories are always about people. If you're talking, if you're not talking about people, you're not telling stories. If you're not telling stories, you're not connecting. And if you're not connecting, you're not selling. And I know some people just heard me use the S word, selling. But anyone who's asked someone on a date is selling. Anyone who's asked for a raise is selling. Anyone who's tried to, tried to put a child to bed is selling. So I'm not talking about getting people to part with their money, though it can be that. I'm talking about making a difference in somebody's life, influencing their opinion. So stories are always about people. Those people or that person is think of them as being on a sailboat out on the rocky stormy seas of conflict and what they want to do is get to the safe port of transformation and if we go back to our schooling days we always remember our english or language arts teacher telling us that a story is made up of three parts introduction body and conclusion is that necessarily true in all I stories that's so academic. It's like saying that a, a person is made up of head, body, and feet. But, you know, I mean, you can divide things up any way you want. I, I think, you know, beginning, middle, and end, that's not a model that helps anybody tell a story. Whereas if we talk about the conflict and the transformation, when you work, when I work with people on their storytelling, whether they're people who are in presentation contests or, or business leaders, the first thing I always ask is, what's the transformation? How do you want the audience to think, feel, or act different at the end of the story? Because if you don't know that, you're just blowing air around. 
You might have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but we've all sat through data dump speeches. Somebody wants to talk about how this machine works or how this technology works. And yeah, we need the information, but we'd rather they just wrote an article because they're not telling a story. They're not connecting with us emotionally or meaningfully. And, and it doesn't work. So a story is a journey. No journey, no story. No matter how good or useful the information might be. But you would also give a little bit to that information that stories have a beginning, middle, and end, whether they're bad stories, good stories. You just said data dump. Now, if you have a data dump, it doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. There's no story there. It's just a data. It's just a dump of data. Would you say that bad, moderate, and even good stories have a beginning, middle, and end? I think, yeah, I think so, but I'm just not sure that, uh, what was it? Uh, Hemingway uh, was rumored to have been uh, involved in a contest. It was just a bunch of people sitting in a, uh, around a table drinking, and the bet was who can come up with the best story in six words or less. And his story was, uh, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. That's it. Now you could say, is there a beginning, middle and end? Well, I don't know. There's not, it doesn't have much structure, but you think, why is somebody selling these baby shoes that were never worn? What happened? Did they lose the baby? Did, did, did the, uh, the, the female partner leave and take the baby with her? What, what happened? We don't even know the story, but we know there's a story there. So is there a beginning, middle, and end? In that, in that example, you have to write it yourself. Maybe that's the story. And throughout human history, there has always been conflict. There's always a point of stress all the way back to our caveman days. Why is conflict so important to storytelling? Conflict taps into the universal, taps into, into themes that are relevant to all of us. And we, it really comes down to survival level things, food, love, shelter, sex, status, safety for ourselves and our family. So if I offer people a way to make a lot of money, well, we're all interested. Let's face it. We'd all like to make more money, right? But I mean, you're, you're a parent. You've dealt with children. And at some point you say, hey, it's time for bed. And your child says, why? Well, because it's your bedtime. Why? Well, because it's getting dark and you have to get up early tomorrow. And they say, why, why, why? And you finally say, because I said so. And you become that parent you swore you, would never, you were never going to become. But... If we keep asking why, 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 it's not, you know, why do you want to make the money? Well, because if, if I get sick, I don't want to become dependent on my relatives or because I want to be able to provide a future for my children. I want them to be able to go to a good college or because I really want to buy that new truck because it's going to make me look cool. It doesn't always have to be such a deep thing, but there's some underlying why. Food, love, shelter, sex, status, safety. Those themes are not intellectual. They're really ab abstract. They're, they're 
they're not even emotional per se. They're just hardwired into who we are as beings who want to survive on planet Earth. Those are the meaningful themes. So I did mention cavemen. Now let's go back to our cavemen days where it all started because mm-hmm. up to a certain point, we have just been surviving, right? Surviving, surviving, surviving. Yes, we had a family unit, but at one point throughout human history, they felt safe to the point where they were able to live in a cave. Now, if food is provided and they did their jobs correctly, you would have a group of people in this cave. And what would they do at night? They would start a fire, sit around the fire, and they would tell stories to each other, even to the point of hieroglyphics. These drawings that they would draw in their caves were stories. Mm -hmm. So you can really point to all the way back and say storytelling has been with us since the beginning. Is that a safe assumption to make? I think stories are hardwired into who we are as living beings. And I love your caveman example. There was this time where we stepped out of the wilderness and we became hunter gatherers. Maybe we moved into a cave and we ventured out to hunt mammoths and mastodons and and other animals. We began to work together. And about 20,000 years ago, we began to grow crops for the first time. And, but we were still out there in the natural environment. And of course, some people on this planet still live. It's them and they've, they've got to go out and find food and not be eaten. That's, that's part of daily existence. So the hunter-gatherer thing is, is innate. Now, when you're a hunter-gatherer, you spend all of your time scanning the world for threats and opportunities. If you see a threat, okay, it's time to call off the hunt because uh, the lions are on the prowl today. We're going to go back to the cave and roll the boulder in front of the door and try again tomorrow. Or maybe there's that, you know, that, that wounded mammoth out there. It's like, this is going to be easy. Let's go and, and mop up, right? There's an opportunity. When we see a threat or an opportunity, we pay attention. Now, if I tell you a story about that, like I just did in a way, I talked about going out, the lions are on the prowl. What happens is you are now scanning for threats and opportunities inside my narrative. I've literally hijacked the base of your brain, the amygdala, and you are using your survival instinct to scan for threats and opportunities inside my story, which is why we can sit in a movie theater and watch Lord of the Rings And we feel excitement, we feel fear. And even though intellectually we know we're sitting in a movie theater, psychologically we are in that scene trying to avoid the evil wizards and and the orcs and the monsters. And we're, we're there in that narrative. And when you tell a story, you become the guide. If I tell you a story about being in a storm at sea, I'll engage you during that story but you were expecting me to get you out of it unless you're an experienced sailor and maybe you'll judge that story differently. But yeah, that's, that's a powerful way to influence people, bring people into a story, engage them and you become the guide. Let's go ahead and connect 
our storytelling caveman days to where we are today. And together, I want us to list to the listeners all of the ways we tell stories today. You mentioned one already, which is movies. Every single movie, even documentaries, are about a story. Tiger King is about a story. Every single movie that has ever come into existence is made up of a story, right? Do you want to take the next one? Where else do you see stories today? Well, certainly we see books. Fiction. There is, fic- yeah. yeah, fiction books. And the better, the better business books, the better nonfiction books are using stories, business fables like The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. I wrote a book called The Story Story, which is a novel wrapped. It's a business book wrapped in a novel. It's got a twist at the end because who wants to listen to me talk about stories when I can teach you about storytelling through a story? Uh, Commercials and advertising, when they're done well, they tell stories. When they're not done well, they don't use stories. And it's prices, processes, ingredients, and data. And we immediately pull up our phones and check our email until the commercial's over because it's not relevant to our survival. TV shows, Netflix, every TV show has a story. Now, there are not even, it's not just one story. There are are stories within a TV series, Mm -hmm. a TV season. Characters have character arcs. Every single episode in that series tells a story. So these writers do have that challenge uh, as to, okay, we have this episode. How are the characters going to move forward? What does this, how is this episode? What's the story of this episode? How does this episode tie into the season? How does this episode tie tie into the series? So there are stories within stories with something like a TV show. Uh, one yeah, of the- and screenwriters really study this stuff. If you pick up a book on screenwriting, they go deep into the into the art of storytelling. And it's interesting because Hollywood has some incredibly formulaic approaches. If you're writing a movie, there are certain things that happen on certain pages of your script, give or take a page or two. How do things evolve? Uh, some of it some of it relates to, for example, Camp, uh, Campbell's Hero's Journey, which is a classic form that's used for movies like Star Wars. But yeah, let's say you're writing an episode, even for a comedy. What happens? Who's the main character in that episode? What happens to that character? What happens to the other characters? How do those lanes intersect? And how do we resolve? What do we resolve at the end so that the viewer feels that the story is complete. Then what do we leave hanging so that the viewer wants to watch the next episode? I mean, there was a classic, I don't know where it is, but it's on the internet where they compared the story of Harry Potter to Luke from Star Wars, where you have this kid, they're both kids. They both learn that they're meant for something great. They both go out and learn the tricks of the trade and that there's this evil person that they need to battle I mean, again and again and again, it hits all of those points. And you're talking about two different stories, but in that, but their framework is basically the same. It's classic hero's journey, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell, hero's journey stuff. It hits all those points. Again, I, it's that model is great for theater, for cinema. It's got a lot of moving parts and people try to use it for everything. And, and I think there's that there are simpler ways to tell 
hmm. other kinds of stories. Interesting. But yeah, and if you think about who's Luke Skywalker, he's just some kid stuck on the farm uh, doing chores with his boring aunt and uncle, and he wants to go out and have adventure and see the world. Next thing you know, they're right. That's normal. And then he's out in the desert chasing the droids and gets rescued by Obi-Wan Kenobi. He comes back home. Everything's burnt up. Life changes. Now look at Harry Potter. Harry Potter is this kid with immense talent. He lives with his aunt and uncle, right? Same, same parallel there. Aunt and uncle. And he lives in the little room underneath the stairs. He is so underappreciated, right? And then he meets the wizarding people and is pretty much kidnapped and sent off. But it's in both cases, you've got a story that's a metaphor for the viewer who's not being appreciated and not being able to express their potential. And then they meet the teachers and guides and they're off to uh, battle the demons. To move forward, we also see stories in the news. I think news wouldn't be so captivating if it weren't for the fact that there's a story. In each news bulletin, there are stories within in which these journalists have to write somehow a beginning, middle, and end to capture the audience's attention. Yeah, and I think many of them work too hard at it. when, When I work with storytellers, I always say, be a journeyist, not a journalist. And if I'm writing a speech, for example, or an entertainment piece, then my goal is to make you think about something, to make you feel something in a different way. But if I'm writing to you about what happened in downtown Miami today, I don't actually know, but making it up, then, yeah, it's good to make it interesting. Hopefully something happened. I wouldn't write an article that, well, there was a lot of traffic because, well, of course, that happens every day. But if something really unusual blocked the traffic for two hours, I might write about, okay, that's the conflict. People were having a hard time, right? Somebody kicked the anthill and the ants were scurrying all over the place. And then how did that get resolved? So there is a certain amount of conflict and resolution, but if you make it too colorful, it's not news anymore. You're trying mm. too hard to sell advertising and, and uh, persuade readers to believe a certain way. And I know that in, in advance of, and I don't want to get political, but it, about two or three months in advance of our last election, I just turned off the news because I couldn't find much news there. I found editorializing on both sides was spending too much time hunting around, trying to read between the lines. And, you know, it was, it was too much storytelling and not enough journalism. That was very interesting because the election in and of itself was a story which had some sort of a beginning, middle, and then we all were there to see its conclusion. Mm-hmm. Some people would argue that it's not over, but we it did it did come to its natural conclusion. A couple of more places where we can identify storytelling as very important, and then we'll move on. The next place you will find storytelling is stand-up comedians. Stand-up comedians love to go up on stage and tell you funny stories. That's what really gets you laughing. And the last point I wanted to make is songs. Every single song, you can argue, is about storytelling whether it's someone that is falling in love, whether someone is going through a breakup, they're storytelling. So it's in the fabric of our lives. Would you, would you not say that stories and storytelling is in the fabric of our lives? 
absolutely. I think story is what connects us to the universal. We're all alone on this planet and we want to connect with people who see the world the same way we do. And if we get to those surface level behaviors, we're not going to find that. They're driven by a lot of lower level desires and conflicts. But when we tell a story and we all relate to that story, then we're, we have a deeper connection with people around us or a deeper division, depending on the story. That's an interesting point. Now you brought up our communication with other people and I'll go a little bit personal, but I definitely need your, would like your feedback on this. If somebody is telling me a story and I connect so much to that story that I have my own story to tell, I kind of feel like I want to, and I need to interject and say my story and I'm interrupting or as soon as they finish, I'll go ahead and say my story because I just want to say it. Mm -hmm. And I've heard, and I kind of do agree that it's somewhat rude to not validate the other person's story, empathize with the person that just told the story. How can we be better communicators even when we want to interject with how something happened to us feels like almost the same thing that they went through without validating their story? Great question. So I think the most important storytelling skill is listening. And when we find ourselves so eager to respond, like being in class, I know the answer, pick me, pick me, our hand is going up in the air. But sometimes as we do in public speaking, the best thing you can do when you start a speech is go up on stage, close your eyes, take a deep breath, count to three, do that power pause, get centered. And I think the same as when we're responding to somebody else, take a moment, nod your head, let them know that you're listening and considering. So we don't have a, a, a lot of time, but if, if, if somebody says, look before you leap, always look before you leap, you can jump in, but well, wait before you say, yeah, but he who hesitates is lost. How are we going to resolve that? No, those are two sayings, not stories, but they're in, they're in contradiction. But can you listen and respond first? I think, like you say, it's, it's courteous. Or you can imagine a bunch of guys sitting around a campfire telling their fishing stories. And it's like, oh, yeah? Oh, I went fishing in Bimini once and I caught the, oh, that's nothing. And it's an interruption contest. And that's just part of the vibe of it. But in, in polite company, yeah. So we can take both and then I'll come up with another example. So the fishing thing. Oh, I caught one two feet long. I've caught one two and a half feet long. And you're absolutely right. In that case, it could be acceptable, right? But if somebody says to me, oh, my grandfather passed away from cancer last week and I'm really sad about it. And then I say, yeah, both my grandparents in 1990." Five and 1997 also passed away from cancer. Again, I'm not validating this person's story. I'm just inserting my story into, into what they're trying to tell me. And I, I don't feel that that's right. And like what you said, we should pause and respond accordingly, correct? Or in the example that you gave, 
you could say, wow, I know, I know what you're going through. I lost both of my grandparents to cancer. Uh, is, is there, is there any support I can offer you? Okay. So it's, I'm telling you mine. So, so I can empathize more with you. How can I be of support? Yeah. Make it, make it very clear. You know, I, I and, and this is one of my big storytelling principles. It's, I, I always say, vote yourself off the island and explore the world in a U-boat. And when we tell our own stories and we've all heard people, I, I heard somebody talk about his ascent of Mount Everest once. And I was trying to figure out why I was so bored. And it was because as fascinating as it was to hear about somebody climbing Mount Everest to go up and up and up and on and on and on and on. It's like, Hey, I got Netflix, dude. I can watch somebody climb Mount Everest any day and I can see it in full color. That's all well and good. So you have to tell your story about the audience. You have to be able to find a connection so I can tell you about the storm that I was in at sea and you'll be interested for a short while. But at some point I need to talk about the storms that you face in your life and business. I have to make my story a metaphor for your story because otherwise I'm just up there talking about myself and you know, narcissism is the only disease in the world where the sicker you are, the better you feel. And I see too many people having a good time up there on the platform doing their therapy at the audience's expense. What opportunities can being a good storyteller bring to someone? I think storytelling is the ultimate sales tool. And I'll go back to what I said before about the S word. It works in business. It it works in life. It works in your social life. It, it, no matter what it is you're doing, if you want to connect with people, you're not, you're not going to influence people or engage people unless you connect with them. And stories are the tools to do that. You can take, take imagine a photograph. It could be two, two angry people. It could be a man and a woman. It could be a, a a parent and a child and the thought balloons over their heads, they can't hear each other saying, they both say, that's not how our story was supposed to go. You could, you could make an argument that all disagreements are story disagreements. And the solution to that is listening and communication. How important is subtext or context to a story? I think it really depends on the story, but I think that subtext can actually be that. I mean, com comedians are masters at that, right? Because when, when we're telling, so if I tell a story about, about my ocean crossing and the storm that we hit, that's might be an interesting piece of storytelling for you to hear for a while. As soon as I make it about the long passages that you have to make in life, and the storms and the calms you encounter and being out of sight of land. And I make that a metaphor for what you're going through in your life. The subtext is everything. That's really the connecting point. The rest of it's just a vehicle. Whether I talk about building a bridge or swimming across a river or sailing across an ocean or climbing to a mountaintop, those are all just metaphorical journeys. And you'll find any number of speakers who capitalize on those different metaphors to deliver the same message in a different way. 
So for those listening right now, how would they be able to figure out what their story is? How can you figure out what your story is? Well, first of all, think about that transformation. What transformation do you offer or can you offer that you're not currently offering? Maybe you need to change your story to become more authentic, but what is, what is the wind, the invisible, powerful force that's invisible that, that, that blows that sailboat from conflict to transformation or that you can use to blow somebody else's sailboat from conflict to transformation. It could be a talent. Maybe you're just a wonderful musician or a wonderful writer or you're great with math or you're, you're a wonderful sketch artist or you've, you've just got uh, a, a talent for connecting with people. Maybe you're one of those type A people who everybody just loves and you're, you're out there and you just love connecting with people, whatever you could be um, a fantastic piece of equipment that you have or a teammate or a partner. It doesn't even have to be inherent in yourself. It could be something that somebody else or something else completes. But what is what is that magic that you bring into the world? Because when you discover that, that's really your story and there is no competition. So for those that are thinking, well, I'm just a person. Yes, I have a family. I have a job, but I don't know if I have a story. Should they write down things that may have happened in their life that, ha that could add to their personal story? I think so. I mean, or just meditate on it or, or find a metaphor for it. But, you know, what, think about what, what would you do if you won the lottery? And of course, some people would go, go nuts and spend a lot of money on sports cars and, and yachts. And 70% uh, of lottery winners go, go bankrupt within two years. But think about what would you do if, you, if money was no object? You could do anything you want. You could stop doing anything you no longer wanted to do. And how would you live your life? Now, that's a scary question for a lot of people, but what would you do to serve other people? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe the lottery example is not perfect because it isn't how would you indulge yourself? It's you, you've got all the food and lodging and travel you want, but you have to dedicate your life to the service of others. And what would you do that would really be fulfilling? How would you use your innate talents and interests? Or maybe you'd go study something that fascinates you and then do it. But find, find that inner magic that you either have or could cultivate because it's driven by your passion and your purpose. Storytelling brings a lot of value to a lot of people's lives, entertainment, purpose, but also stories are a double-edged sword. And on the other side of that coin, you, we have stories that we tell ourselves about what might happen in the future. And we call that fear. We have a fear of something happening in our lives in the future, and we do it through storytelling. Okay. I'm going to get called down to my boss's office and they're going to tell me something horrible. My doctor said he needed to speak to me. He's not going to give me good news. So how can we use the power of storytelling to help us get over these innate fears that we have about the future 
and the stories we tell ourselves about the future? Well, it's interesting. We, we all battle the demons of self-doubt in one form or another. And we deal, with, for example, with imposter syndrome. You might be sitting there dressed nicely at a conference table and thinking, all of these people are going to figure out that I'm just a, a boat bum wearing a suit or that they're going to think I don't know what I'm talking about or I'm going to get up to do this presentation and I'm going to forget all my words, whatever it is. And all of these fears begin with what if. We manufacture what ifs and we forget to manufacture, you know, what if I got up on stage and remembered all my lines? What if I gave a great presentation and the client said, uh, I want two of them? But you know what, Dave, I'm going to stop you right there because in those scenarios, there's no conflict. And again, if stories are embedded in our psyche, we need conflict. And whether that conflict exists or not, doesn't matter. Fear is fear. And we're going to create that conflict in our future stories. Well, so, is, so is there any way to battle that? Well, I disagree with you, but I think that because the conflict is internal, it's perhaps self, the demons of self-doubt, that's perhaps the most universal conflict of all. And it's part of the human condition that we are constantly doubting ourselves and checking ourselves to see, are, you know, are we up to this? Are we going to survive this? Is this safe? It comes from, from these, you know, from, from survival instinct. The amygdala. But, we, but we, what we have to be able to do is distinguish whether we're telling ourselves a story and getting stuck in that story or whether we might not be better off to take the risk because those people sitting in that cave with the boulder rolled in front of the door, hey, the lions are going to be out there somewhere. They might not be in sight when they go out on the savanna to hunt gazelle, but they might be hiding in the grass. At some point, they're going to get hungry and they're going to decide that they need to take a risk. They're going to bring their spears with them. They're going to take some precautions, stay in touch, develop whatever they need to do. It's the people who don't go out and live life because they're afraid to that are stuck in that ultimate story. And, you know, you, there's this, there's a dark side to storytelling. I mean, God, Adolf Hitler was a master storyteller. He convinced the German people that the, that the Jewish people were responsible for all, all of the economic downfall and people were hungry at the time and they needed somebody to blame. And I mean, look what happened the world war, war two, there's, there's a dark side of the force and, if we don't learn to distinguish uh, between stories that we tell ourselves uh, consciously, between stories that we create and then stories that just bubble up from dark parts of our consciousness, if we start confusing that stuff, then we can create a lot of trouble or find ourselves in a lot of trouble. And what advice would you give to people to help them distinguish between the dark side of their innate human tendencies versus what's possible well first of all are you serving people without sacrificing people are you you know are, are you doing good in the world are you serve are you serving people are are you creating connections are you creating opportunities because there's plenty of resources for everybody so what you're saying is that we all have our personal values 
and that your actions need to meet up with those values. And whether you like it or not, in order to meet up with those values, you're going to have to figuratively move that boulder and go on the hunt. Right. But, but you're going to have to be aware of your surroundings and aware of yourself. Awareness goes both directions. Well, isn't awareness of self knowing what your personal values are? Yeah, and I find that that's, that's a moving target for a lot of people. People know what their values are, but you start throwing money at them and those values can change, at least for some people. Other people are just like, sorry, that would be nice to have that stack of cash, but I can't be bought. Then there are people whose values are taught to them, but not fully integrated. So maybe somebody is uh, religious because they've been indoctrinated into a particular religion, but they're not necessarily thinking about, is that value is that principle relevant to me? Or is that just something I read in the book and was told I'd be punished if I didn't agree with? Are, are the values internal or are they just external? Something you wear like a jacket. You know, you brought up religion and I wanted to go back to where do we see stories in our lives and nowhere else do you see an immense amount of stories. The Bible's than full the Bible. of stories, some wonderful stories. And I'm pretty and sure. By the way, I'm not, I'm not against religion. I think I'm... Uh, I just don't think that religion is uh, contradicts with self-awareness. I know some very enlightened religious people of many, many different faiths. And um, it's, it's when it becomes a uniform that, that the story's not really internalized and it's often misunderstood and can become constructive. Again, there's the dark side and the light side of storytelling. I wanted to go back to the values thing. So you said if somebody throws money at someone, they will change or adjust their values accordingly. They so may. Which, huh? They might. So let's take the personal value of integrity. Is that something that someone would be willing to lose or downgrade on in order to get more money? Uh some people, I think there's the story of, um, I believe it was Groucho Marx was talking to a woman and he said, would, um, um, would you sleep with me for $10,000? And she said, I don't know, I might. He said, would you sleep with me for a dollar? And he said, she, she says, well, what do you think I am? He said, we've already established what you are. We're just haggling over the price. And of course, it's an old Groucho Marx joke, but you know, people, people have their principles and some people understand that their principles are uh, deep-seated and not to be violated because you violate yourself when you violate your principles. And other people, uh, some people grow up with broken principles from an early age where being, being honest has not been particularly valuable to them. Some people are, are quicker to sell out, go for the money. So overall, Dave, to bring it back full circle, in order for someone to find their story, you would suggest for them to find their conflicts and how they transformed and got through it, correct? That would be one way. But the other side of it is, you know, life is, life is to be lived. Go out and create a story. When I, when I had that opportunity to take some time off in my life and go sailing to the Bahamas, I had a million people with a million reasons why I shouldn't do it. 
I should, I should go back to school. I should start a career. I'm throwing my life away. You could sink in the middle of the ocean. You could get stranded. You could get this, you could this, it, what if, what if, what if? And I chose to do it. And I chose to do it by myself because trust me, it, I was a 24 year old guy. It would have been nice to have taken a pretty girl along with me to share the adventure with. But you know what? Everybody was busy doing their own game with this is this is my direction. This is my focus. And Dave is nuts. So I went by myself and had had my adventures and found my stories and came back and and picked up my professional pieces later in life and, and my academic pieces when I was ready to. But you've got to go out and find what that is. Now, you don't have to sail across the ocean, but I mean, I, I remember having a classroom full of students once and asking how many people have slept under the stars and maybe one person raised their hand. And there's stuff in your backyard you can go do. Go connect with someone you've never met before. Go spend a little time in the wilderness. God, get, go down to, to Key Largo and get on the snorkel boat and go see the reef for a couple of hours and come back in. Go with the guide. It doesn't matter. But get off the couch. Get away from the television. Go live some life. There are stories to be found everywhere. I was in film class one day here in Miami-Dade College, and one of my professors said, class, who has ever done this? No one raised their hand. He goes, who has ever done this? No one raised their hand. He got so frustrated and he just looked at all of us and said, guys, there's a life outside of Miami. Go live your life. And the way you were talking reminds me of that moment where everybody was just laughing because we know it's true that there is a life outside of whatever city you live in. And sometimes you need to go and have an adventure and go explore. Now... And we're in South Florida. We've got the Everglades. We've got the Keys, and we've got the different the different environments within that. Just you know, hiking hiking around in the mangroves. There's a whole magic world in there. But you know, I mean, I think of things I've done in my life. I climbed an eight thousand foot volcano and sl slept inside the the crater and climbed down the next day. Now it wasn't an active volcano, or I wouldn't have climbed down the next day, but. Nevertheless, it was it was neat. I slept in a lava tube in the volcano. I've swum with humpback whales. I've done things in my life that I guarantee you I'm never I'm always gonna remember, I'm never gonna regret, and I'll always I've got stories. And you would encourage people to go out and find their stories. Yeah. I mean, and if you're afraid to do it on your own, then go with a guide, take a safari trip and, and go shoot photographs of elephants and giraffes. Or, I mean, God, where are the closest woods? Probably closer than you think. Go take a walk in the pine forest. Just, just experience something that's just off your beaten path. And for most of us in an urban environment, that's nature. If somebody was living on a farm and had been doing that all their life, I might say, why don't you take a trip to Manhattan for a week and go get your mind blown? I mean, do something different, have some life experiences and you're going to have some stories. Even when you get lost or stuck, you'll get, you'll find your way. You'll get unstuck. Nobody ever had an adventure where everything went right. So welcome those conflicts, those new conflicts, have some fun and come home and laugh at yourself. That's great. Let's go ahead and move on to our leaders. Our leaders are people that we look up to, 
who de- we depend on for advice, how to get the work done, etc. Why is being a good storyteller a big part of being a good leader? Because many leaders lead with authority. They're bosses. They're not leaders. They're bosses. And they're very good at telling other people what to do. And they're not so good most of the time at telling other people why they should do it. And what happens is if you've ever, if you've ever had a job where you've worked for an authoritarian boss, now some people like the structure because they don't want to think for themselves. I don't relate to that. I can't really comment on that. But when somebody says, here's, here's what I need you to do. And here's the meaning of it. Here's the benefit of what you're doing to your team members or our customers or the congregation or whatever it is, as soon as you have some purpose behind what it is that you're doing, you can do amazingly boring things for a long time because what you're thinking about is not, okay, I have to keep putting part A into part B and part A, you know, or screwing toothpaste tube caps on all day or something that would just drive me crazy. But if you felt that every time you did that, that there was a benefit to a person and that your role was important, you're like, yeah, it's boring, but I put my headphones on and I plow through the day because I know I'm making a difference in the world. Too many leaders are worried about keeping the machine going, keeping the business going, keeping the government going, keeping whatever it is. And they end up treating people like robots. Can you engage people with a story? This is, you know, we make widgets, but this is our role in the world. This is how we make people's lives better. Those employees are much more likely to stick around, even if the task that they do is the same. When we go and watch a movie, we're so accustomed to these good endings. How do you feel about movies or stories with bad endings or endings we don't want to experience? You know, there's, there's a place for it. We call that the cautionary tale. But we watch a movie because we want to watch a journey from conflict to transformation. Now, it may be... You know, for example, somebody gets very close to somebody elderly and then that elderly person dies and that's sad at the end of the movie. Take a classic like Harold and Maude, but but I don't know if you ever saw that one. Might be before your time. It's a a classic, classic movie of of a young kid who loves to fake suicides to terrorize his mother. And he falls in love with Ruth Gordon, who's this old woman who's just about to be 80. And, uh, and he literally falls in love with her, much to his mother's additional horror. And then at the end of the m- movie, she says, it's my 80th birthday. I took the pills. I'll be gone by morning. And he freaks out. But from her, he learns to love life. So in the, in the, end, of, in the end of the movie, he's transformed into a much healthier person because he's been so preoccupied with death. And he meets this woman who's loves living so much, but she doesn't want to get old and frail and sick. And so she says, I've had a great life up to the last minute, spends her last night with Harold, and then she's gone. And so you don't expect it. I I, I mean, I don't think I've spoiled the movie, but yeah, that's as long as there's transformation, we'll watch. But if you just 
watch a movie and everybody struggles and dies. It's like, it leaves you feeling empty. It's those pit of despair stories. And I've heard speakers do that too. You can take your audience into darkness, but if you don't bring them back into the light, you're going to create a lot of business for the local therapists. It really torques people's brains to just a story of everybody failed the end. It's just unsatisfying. And yet we'll watch a terrible movie all the way to the end because we want to feel the click of that happy ending. What are some common mistakes people make when telling a story? Number one, talking about yourself. If you can tell your story, but you have to tell your story about the audience. Number two, we talked about uh, this, we just talked about this idea of, of people um, bringing out from the darkness. Yes. The, don't, don't go up and there's a variation on the darkness story, which is the, if I can do it, you can do it story. We've all heard somebody get up on the platform and say, you know, I had a beautiful wife and two kids and a successful career. And then I got into drugs. And one morning I woke up wrapped in newspaper, freezing, sleeping behind a dumpster. And I knew I needed to get help. And I joined a 12-step program and da, 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 da. And I got better and I quit the drugs. And now I'm in front of you. And if I can do it, you can do it. Now, I applaud that person for having found some success out, out of whatever their problem was, whether they're battling addiction or battling cancer or whatever it is. But you can't compare your pain to anybody else's pain. And what it may just be that there's somebody in that audience who's also battling addiction who has even less strength of character than you did and they're still stuck and your story's not going to motivate them it's just going to make make them feel even farther away from finding that solution that transformation that they're looking for so i find that there are people who have had traumatic life experiences and they want to go teach an audience about handling adversity and it has to be handled very, very carefully because it can really backfire. The other one is, you know, the data dump, which isn't even a story. But for example, if I were to give a presentation about WordPress and talk about how WordPress is open source software that over 500 million people have used to create their websites. It's built with uh, MySQL and PHP, which are other open source technologies. By the time I get another sentence or two into this, you're already asleep. Even though I've been talking about this incredible, powerful technology. Whereas if I say something like, have you ever wanted to edit and design your own website and have complete control over the content, consider the power of WordPress. WordPress allows you to manage your own content, to choose from thousands of pre-created designs that you can install and change with a click of a mouse. And you can add all of these additional add-ons called plugins where you can add mailing lists and slideshows and uh, you know, on and on and on. I'm not going to, but the idea is, and then I would close with something, give WordPress a try. I would kick ask at the end. I would, I would put some sort of a message at the end, but I'm talking about benefits to people because people are afraid of technology and people want control and they're afraid of having a, a tech firm or a designer have control over their business and their message. And, 
all of a sudden I'm dealing with the emotional levels. So the data dump doesn't work. Whereas if you can reframe all of those features and turn them into benefits that are authentic for people, then you can give the exact same information in a way that's really compelling. Let's go back to that addiction example that you gave about a speaker who goes up and says, I went through addiction, I got over it. And now the specific audience member that you described is feeling inferior. I've seen many speakers then say, join my program and you will feel better. Is that manipulation or is just that a way to get them to sell something, a program? I think it depends on the program and, and it depends on the person who might join the program. I've seen speakers who offered incredible value through their programs and they use some of the classic techniques. They tie up, they tie the audience into their conflict. I know you want to, let's, what's a common one? Build your own online course. Think of the, e, the income, but you've got to organize it. You've got to write it. You've got to design it. You've got to create the assessments. You've got to plug in the technology. If you do, if you hire a firm to do this, it's going to cost you $75,000, $80,000. If you join my program, I've got coaches and people on my team. We're going to walk you through the whole thing and you'll have an online course for only $20,000. Now, the fact of the matter is if you're not a techie and you're not a writer and you know, it might be a very good deal for you. But then again, if you're, if you're a real tech savvy, do it yourself, or it might cost you nothing but time to do your course for most people. It's a good value proposition. As long as the person offering the program is delivering on their promise. And as long as there's some advice given that's going to give that student, that, that uh, protege, a reasonable chance of recovering the $20,000. There are other programs I know where people join a coaching program and all they do is they babysit. We're going to have an account accountability call once a week. You're going to set goals. I'm going to ask you. I'm not going to beat you up, but if you don't meet your goals, you said you were going to contact uh, 10 prospects last week, but you only got to three. What's getting in your way? But you know what? I don't, I don't need that kind of babysitting, but a lot of people do. It can make the difference between surviving and your business and floundering around and not getting anything done because you can't be self-motivated. I think it depends on the pitch, it depends on the deliverables, and it depends on the prospect. But again, we have to be aware of ourselves. Are we being pitched? And are we being offered a good value proposition? Or is this something that's really great for a lot of people, but not me? Not get sucked into that emotional I'm never going to get my online course together unless I, unless I take advantage of today's low, low, low introductory offer and, you know, off, off, operators are standing by to take my call, but they won't be there tomorrow. And I better act now. And this, this is my time to bet, you know, get out of that headspace. Cause there are people who will put the whammy on you and make you feel like you're going to die if you don't buy. Dave, since the pandemic started, a lot of us have been home and so do you think that connecting back face-to-face -face is going to be better for us in the future? You mentioned the pandemic. 
and it certainly changed the story of how we live and work. And okay. I just got some schooling because I thought that, you know, my, my attitude is, you know, we're, we're all, we've been working from home. I'm home right now. I assume you are too. Yes. And a lot of people are going to say, why I'm, I'm going to get rid of that lease on that office. that has been shuttered for 15 months and let my employees work from home, save all that, put that $20,000 a month in my pocket. And then you're going to have a lot of employees who say, you know what? If it's all the same for you, boss, that two hours a day I used to spend on I-95 almost getting killed for and never getting paid for, uh, why don't I just stay home or come in when I'm needed? And we're going to see some of that. But on the other hand, I figured it was going to be the small hotels that were going to put in cameras and and really that there was going to be a huge business in virtual meetings going forward, save the airfare, save the hotel. But at least right now, what, what I'm seeing through connections in the meetings industry is that people want to connect. And I know I've had a few breakfasts and lunches with old friends and, and just, just to get together and have a hug. And it's just pe- people want to connect in person. And I think we're going to go farther back in the direction we came because you know, it's again, it's the whole point of stories and, and Zoom is great, but when you can sit in the same room and see your friends in 3D, I, I think the storytelling experience is a little deeper and a little richer and people want that innately. Dave, you have shared a lot of insight as to the power of stories and storytelling. But if somebody does still doesn't know what their story is or what their conflict is or if they want to sell something, how can you help them? How can people get a hold of you? My website is storysailing.com, S-T-O-R-Y-S-A-I-L-I-N-G.com. And I'm easy to find on Facebook and I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Just plug my name into Google. I've been publishing web content since the 90s. So I'm, I'm easy to locate. And usually what I do is I work with business leaders and organizations, and I've done a lot of work with uh, contest speakers, that kind of thing, uh, with world champion of public speaking, but high stakes presentations. You, you'd be amazed at how many construction companies, for example, will go in and pitch a, a new building for a university, eight figure project, and they'll go in with, with terrible slides and, and a bloated presentation. It's like, with so much at stake, get a coach, doesn't have to be me, but, but presentation coaching, storytelling coaching, how are you going to engage with the people you are selling to and build that trust, build, build that rapport, because the rest of it's just data and your competitors can usually do the same thing you can. They're going to choose the people they want to work with the most. And you have a couple of books on Amazon that anybody can pick up and read, correct? I actually have 12 books on Amazon, <laughs> but there's, there's a little book called Story Sailing, which is a guide to storytelling for speakers, trainers, and coaches. There's the story story, which is the novel. And then there is a book called The Writer's Guide to Powerful Prose, which talks about language patterns and things like that. And just go on Amazon and go to Dave Bricker. Just search Dave Bricker and it's all there. It's all there. Right. All right. This has been The Power of Stories with Dave Bricker. 
Dave, I want to thank you again for coming on to my podcast. Hector, thank you so much. Great to connect with you again. And that about does it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.